Welcome to the Conversions Podcast, where we discuss conversion rate optimization and the latest tips, technologies, and actionable strategies that you can actually use to get more of your website's visitors to take action. And now, your host, Francis Teo. Welcome to another episode of the Conversions Podcast. Today we have with us Andrew Yodarian. Andrew is a full-time e-commerce entrepreneur who has built out a number of online stores from scratch. He currently owns a number of e-commerce stores including TrollingMotors.net and Right Channel Radios. He blogs at ecommercefuel.com and is also the author of Profitable E-commerce, a well-reviewed ebook on starting an e-commerce store. He's also the host of a new podcast called the E-commerce Fuel Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for having me here, Francis. Can you tell us a bit about how you got into the e-commerce business? Sure. I got into into the world of finance right out of college. Worked uh, in investment banking for a couple of years and uh, learned a lot of great stuff, but realized that it wasn't something I wanted to be doing long term. And so after a couple of years, ended up quitting and was just looking for a business that I could you know, work uh, from anywhere. Uh, it didn't require a whole lot of capital uh, and uh, stumbled upon drop shipping as a potential option. And so started started that back in uh, also probably 2008 with the launch of uh, Right Channel Radios, which is a, a store I own that sells uh, radio equipment. And so started with that and uh, just grew that for a couple of years. Uh, after a couple of years, started a second store, trollingmotors.net. Uh, both are drop shipped, uh, you know, drop shipping stores that, that are kind of niche focused and, um, you know, grew that for a couple of years. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been about three or four, I guess, five years now since I've been doing both of those and recently just started blogging about e-commerce at uh, ecommercefuel.com. So kind of just stumbled into it as as a, uh, a really interesting uh, business opportunity and have kind of uh, ran with it for the last five years or so. So tell us a bit more about the e-commerce stores you currently run. Sure. So Right Channel Radios, uh, again, it's a dropship uh, company. work with a number of suppliers that just dropship most of our products and we sell CB radio equipment. And so CB radios are our short range radios uh, for use, mostly in the U.S. They're used internationally some, but... Uh, uh, they were really popular back in like the 70s and 80s. That was kind of their heyday. And um, since then, they've, they've declined in popularity, but they're still used. So they're used by over-the-road truckers. They're used by you know, truck uh, guys who have pickup trucks and Jeeps, uh, people who just need to communicate vehicle to vehicle on the road. So, so that's right channel radios. And then uh, for, for trollingmotors.net, uh, same kind of idea, completely drop-shipped. And we focus on electric trolling motors. So when a boater, when a fisherman goes out in his big boat, a lot of times they'll have two motors. One motor is uh, very powerful, uh, it's very fast, and it can get the boat to a fishing spot over the water quickly, whereas the trolling motor is electric. So it's, it's going to be quieter, uh, it's going to be a little stealthier, it's going to be easier to position a boat more precisely uh, than it would be with the bigger motor. And uh, they're very popular with fishermen to, to maneuver their boats while they're fishing. So, so those are both the stores we have. Both of them are run on Magento. Uh, both of them, uh, mostly we drive organic traffic to. I uh, do a little, little pay-per-click, but, but not too much. It's, it's kind of hard to make that work with dropshipping when the margins are a little bit smaller. So mostly, mostly organic traffic-based. You know, I have a good team of people to help me out with that. i got a guy in the States here uh, that, that's my sales manager, and he helps manages most of the day-to-day operations, have a couple, uh, couple international team members as well, VAs. So, yeah, both great businesses, and uh, I've learned a, a tremendous amount running them over the last five years. So taking a look at your CB radios and electric trolling motors site, it seems that these are very niche a bit more esoteric kind of uh, sites to sell stuff on. How do you get into this? 
No, you're right. They're uh, they're very niche and kind of uh, really unique markets. A lot of times when I tell people what I do and what I sell, they kind of look at me and aren't quite sure what to make of it. So it, it's funny. The way I got into it was was really a top down approach. When when I started right out of uh, kind of quitting the finance world, my number one goal was to get a business running, and so. Uh, that was profitable. That was my number one objective. And so I wasn't as concerned with with finding something that uh, I was passionate about or excited about the product. I liked, I liked the process of entrepreneurship, and it was important to me that I got something viable up and running. And so really just came to both of those markets, uh, both of those niches uh, by research. So looking at you know keyword volumes, looking at underserved markets, looking at uh, what kind of suppliers, quality suppliers I could find, looking at what kind of uh, accessories, what markets had a lot of different accessories, looking at where I could add value to confusing or complex products. And so through through the process for each one of those of just brainstorming a bunch of ideas and whittling it down, those are two of the stories I came up with. Okay, definitely a quite an interesting way to start a business. So could you tell us some of the strategies you've used in the past to try to increase conversions on your e-commerce sites? Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of different different types that we, we've tried over the years. I think one of the most important ones is, is to really try to craft a custom, unique selling proposition. And it can, this can be difficult to do, but really try to identify what it is that we offer uniquely to our customers and why people should be buying from us versus other people. Sometimes, I mean, obviously you want to have a USP that's as unique and as compelling as possible to your customers. But I found that, that even just defining what you do and saying, you know, claiming to be an expert, ideally you want to be an expert in a niche within your niche, but really narrowing your focus within a niche and calling out your target customers very specifically and just identifying yourself as an expert in a very specific area is helpful. So for example, with trolling motors, we started out selling just general trolling motors to everybody, to all fishermen for all types of boats. And we quickly realized that where we really could add the most value, where we had the most viable business and what we wanted to focus on was really selling the higher end trolling motors. And so you go to our website and we don't just claim to sell trolling motors in general, we claim to sell, uh, we claim to be the, you know, the number one experts in bow mount trolling motors for larger boats. So I think, you know, really trying to sharpen that USP to a very specific customer segment, that's been helpful. Uh, we, we really try to proactively answer customer questions on product pages. So identifying what problems and what buying hesitations customers have before they even land on your website. For the trolling motors, for example, it'd be, well, well how big of a trolling motor do I need? Do I need a 30 thrust or a 60 thrust? Uh, how do, is it going to work with my boat? What do I need to do to wire this? These are all questions that customers are going to have, uh, or most quest customers are going to have. And if you can proactively answer those right on the product page, uh, you're going to be able to overcome a lot of those buying, buying hesitations. Another one is just trying to reduce the number of choices a customer has to make in navigating a site. So, you know, we found that at least in my personally, this and I don't necessarily. I, I think this is backed up by data, but but at least in my my personal life, if I'm looking at a, a a sea of forty options on a menu, it's much harder to make a decision than if I'm looking at three you know three options. Uh, and so we tried to you know kind of tried to bring that into our web design as well. So for example, on the trollingmotors.net webpage, we have fewer choices. I think right now there's like four or five choices. What type of boat do you have? And then that takes you another page that says, well, you know, what type of motor do you want? And and before we did one of our redesigns, we had you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 options for every type of accessory and every type of motor and every type of boat. Uh, we've also tried to reduce the number of choices a customer has for a product. Uh, we did this on the CB side. For example, for some of our cables, we'd have you know, eight or nine or 10 different cables. And it was really hard to distinguish what was really that different between all the different cable types. And when we did a redesign on that site, we really pared it down 
to have a basic budget cable, kind of a standard, good quality, but reasonable value cable, and then a high-end cable. So you've got three options for a customer that, you know, is very clear what the, you know, what the differences are versus, you know, 10 different options. So those, those are some, kind of some of the, the things we've, we've really tried to, to do. Um, and then I guess also, we've also really tried to in, infuse our experience into the copy and into the product descriptions. So this is hard to do out of the gate sometimes, especially if you don't know your niche really well. But as you learn about your products and learn about the needs of your customers, really wrap that experience up into your description. So for a lot of our descriptions, especially on the CB side, we'll say this is our most popular antenna and it's perfect for, you know, users A, B, and C. And, you know, if you're a user D, probably not the best type of, you know, choice for you. But really have opinions and express opinions because shoppers a lot of times when they land on a, on a page, sometimes people know exactly what they want. But a lot of times customers that aren't quite sure what they need, they, they want to be told what to buy. They want to be told what it is that's, that's perfect for what situation. And so if you can take a stand and recommend things Things or not recommend things, uh, you're, you're going to be much more likely to convince a customer to, to buy something. Oh, I was taking a look at both of your sites while you were talking and yeah, they're pretty good in terms of what you mentioned about reducing the, the number of choices and giving certain limited choices. For example, on your trolling motor site, you have like shop trolling motor products by boat type, by brand, by motor type accessories. Um, this is a great way to organize a homepage and a lot of people, they just want to cram everything on the homepage and it's not a really good idea. So this is, well, in optimization, we call this self-selection. So we allow the visitor to choose what they're looking for. And once they are that sub-page, for example, let's say they're looking for accessories. We sell them accessories and give them a lot of detail about accessories because they have self-selected themselves into the accessories group. So this is actually a great strategy. Yeah, thanks. It's I think it's it's worked out well um, with at least kind of in usability testing. You know, because sometimes when we do these big redesigns, we'll go through and either have friends or people online actually go through and and uh, and watch them use the site. And that's always something that a lot of times, especially people that aren't familiar with a, a niche or a market, they just kind of hit a homepage that's got 40 options and they just kind of stall. They don't know where to go. So you conduct some usability testing when you do your site changes? We try to, yeah. We, we've, we've kind of done two big site changes, one for or two big site overhauls. And, and we did a better job of it with, I think, with the, the first overhaul for Right Channel than we did for Trolling Motors. We did it a little bit. But yeah, especially for Right Channel, we went through and it was, I can't remember the name of the site we used, but it took, I think it took five people, like usability.com or I, I can't, or Userlytics. I'm not quite sure, but it was one of those one of those services that uh, you know gives you five people. You give them a task, and they go through, and uh, you can watch their process. And they kind of talk about you know, they, they talk about through their thought process out loud as they're trying to accomplish that task. And you can you can learn a lot of really interesting things uh, in terms of where you know where people are struggling, where pain points are, where it's confusing. But you don't even necessarily have to pay people. You can just get relatives or friends or family to, to do it as well. And it's almost as effective. So it's it's definitely helpful for f trying to figure out major design flaws that you need to fix. Well, we use usertesting.com and it's pretty good. The advantage of using a, a web service like that is you get results back really quickly. So if you commission like three or five user testing, usability tests, you can get results back in an hour. So if you're in a rush, it's pretty good. 
Yeah, that's that's amazingly fast. And it's I, I know some of them too let you pick like the demographics. So for both of our sites, we tend to sell to to males, you know, probably in the 30 to 50 or 35 to 55 age range on average. And so you can get ex- those exact people in that demographic to go through. It's a little more expensive, but it's you know pretty nice to have the exact customers that you're going to be targeting uh, do your usability testing for you. One downside of usability testing from this website is... From a conversion optimization perspective, I tend to be a bit more careful. I mean, it's a really useful tool and these people are great in finding out like UX problems or UI problems on your site. But one thing I tend to be quite careful about is these people, some of them have done like hundreds and hundreds of tests or maybe even thousands. And they start to point out things that are flawed and they give you the expert opinion, but the expert opinion might not be so expert because after all they're not a site owner they have no contact with the customers so that's something i'll be really careful about when so it's sitting feedback in this way i tend to try to get those like i tend to try to sieve out the information that's not so expert and that's the information is actually more useful to improve your site because you want to take that non-expert opinion because your visitors are usually non-experts. They're not optimization experts or user testing experts. That's a really good point. I actually hadn't thought of that before, but I'm sure there are people that get on there and just hammer out usability test after usability test and they're pumping through thousands of them a year. And you can imagine somebody kind of coming up with just maybe a, a library of five or 10 things that they can just look for once they land on a page kind of robotically. <laughs> so, and you're not necessarily getting genuine feedback from somebody who's really looking at your page. You're kind of getting, uh, you know, maybe some recycled feedback that they've given to, you know, hundreds of other sites. So, okay. That's a, that's a really good point. Well, to just add on to that, I think the other thing about that using such a usability testing tool is these people tend to comment on stuff that is very conscious. It's, it's a conscious thinking, very logical thinking process, but conversions oftentimes is a very subconscious process. So they'll be saying stuff like, I don't know, I would like it if there were testimonials on the right sidebar or something like that. But testimonials... And I would say trust sales as well and a lot of conversion elements, they affect the visitor on a very contextual as well as a very subconscious level. So they'll say stuff like that and I would tend to take that into the proper context in order to get the best value of it rather than just take it like, oh no, this guy feels that he needs to trust you on the right sidebar and that's what I'm going to do. But that might not work at all because he's just like speaking from the other hundreds of tests he has done. So another thing to take note of. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Subconsciously, people are just deciding whether or not they, they trust a site or they don't. And uh, kind of like you said, it happens subconsciously. And it's probably a combination of a lot of different things, not just because not just because they're missing one, one testimonial or one trust seal. I'd like to touch a bit about this unique selling proposition. How did you come out of your unique selling proposition? We went through a process, uh, and probably the first thing we did is, is we we looked where we could add the most value and, and what cuts to which of our customers we, we could add the most value. Uh, and so for for the trolling motors, for example, um, you know, we really knew the higher end product line well. We knew the bow mount motors well. They tended to be also the uh, the customers that were going to be most most sensitive to really getting good quality information because they were higher priced products. They wanted to make sure that it was the perfect motor for their boat. And so so that was one part of it. And then the other part of it is I guess there's two other parts. The second part is is 
which of your customers are your best customers? So who do you want to serve? Uh, when we got into the trolling motor market, we thought we were going to sell to everybody and we thought we'd make the most money from selling a lot of the lower end models. Well, that, that just didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, we, we couldn't make very much money on those lower end models and it, it just wasn't a very good business model. And so we couldn't provide a level of service to those customers that we felt really good about because it just there wasn't enough profit per order for those lower end motors to really, as, as we scaled, to be able to provide great service. And so focusing on, you know, focusing on those the customers who who we thought we could serve best was was also part of that. So it's a combination of who you can who can you serve best and who can you provide the most value to. And also you you have to look at what's your customer makeup look like. If if the people that you can serve best, you know, and the people who you're uh, who can get the most value out of your specialty only make up two percent of your customer base, you know, you might want to be looking for, for a different a unique selling proposition or maybe refocus or something. Uh, so you also you know, got to make sure that there's enough of that customer segment there. That you can actually make a viable business if you if you focus on them. So that's the approach that we took. That's a really interesting approach. Well, personally, I don't like the term unique selling proposition. I like value proposition, which is the modern equivalent. Uh, simply from a mindset perspective, when we call it the unique selling proposition, it's sort of like, you know, we have the customers, our main objective is to sell stuff to them. When you say value proposition, it's sort of a, like a mindset shift. It's more about how much value we can give to the customer or to the client or to the visitor. So what you just mentioned, I guess you just expressed that you want to provide value to your customers. So you're doing it in the value proposition way, I would say. So yeah, just an interesting comment. No, that's a good point. I never thought about how, you know, kind of the semantics of, of the word, but yeah, unique selling proposition. Yeah, it's a good point. You should turn it around and <laughs> focus on the value as opposed to hawking your hawking your goods to somebody. The unique selling proposition term, it's so weird because it's like and some people take it too far. They they use like trickery or, or whatever tricks to try to get the visitor to buy because you know, we think we're thinking about how do I sell more stuff rather than how much value can I provide. And in every single case, if you can provide more value to the right customer, you will convert better. And that's the well, secret of conversion optimization. The secret is there is no secret. You'll serve the customers better and you'll get better conversions. Yeah, it's 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 maybe not a secret, but it's it's a lot uh, it can be a lot harder than it sounds to, to pull off when you sit down and start trying to do it. So can you tell us um, a bit more about how you did the redesign and what happened? Sure. So one thing I'm really bad at uh, is, you know, I have some strengths like anyone else, but one of my big weaknesses, at least with e-commerce, one thing I haven't done as well is to really take a scientific approach to conversion and to, to CRO, conversion rate optimization. And so when we did our site redesigns, uh, we did both of them maybe, uh, you know, after a period of time after launching the initial site. And so we'd launch an initial initial site knowing very little about a niche, run the store for, for a period of time. And then we'd learn all these things about our customers, how we could serve them better, what information they really needed, how we could refocus to, you know, to, to really kind of have a, a more tight, uh, tightly focused value proposition. And so at that point, we, we go through and do a complete site redesign. So where I imagine, uh, you know, your process, Francis, is probably uh, more incrementally based testing, you know, testing, being very scientific, uh, taking a very scientific approach to the process. On both of our, our big redesigns, we just tossed everything out and started from scratch and just redesigned the entire site. Um, and so, you know, definitely in one sense, it's really nice from a, from a convenience factor. You can just kind of go through and you don't necessarily 
have to invest as much time into to verifying everything with data and to to confirming that everything is is actually going to increase in, or going to result in an increase in conversion. And so it's nice because you could really make a lot of broad sweeping changes more rapidly. But on the downside, you know, you are it's not as much of a scientific process. Uh, a lot of what we were doing, we kind of had a gut feeling it would work because we knew our customers better, we knew our products better, we had a lot of feedback from customers, but what we weren't sure. And so the process we kind of took is at the high level, we would really collect a lot of feedback from customers. So we would, uh, you know, find out, make a list of what customers' biggest questions and problems were, what their biggest objections to, to purchasing were. Uh, we'd make a list of those. Then we would go through and look at our existing website uh, from a usability standpoint and find out either with user testing um, or just going through it ourselves and making, you know, kind of reasonable assumptions where things weren't very, uh, where they didn't flow well, weren't there, where they weren't logical, where, where it was not a very smooth process for buying. And then we kind of went through and, uh, and really just used all of that information and all of that input to build a new store from the ground up and incorporating a lot of the, that data. And so, for example, on the CB radio side, we knew that one question customers always had was, well, how far will this, two big questions were, one, how far will my, my radio transmit? And what will this radio work with? What cords and cables and mounts and stuff will it work with? And so, you know, in the redesign, we made sure to go ahead and, and uh, include answers to those questions on every single product page that, uh, that we put on. And so, so we'd go through and launch a brand new site uh, for, for both uh, for both of the redesigns that we did. And in both cases, they, they were successful. I think uh, for the, the trolling motor site, uh, we ended up increasing revenue per customer by about 50%. Uh, and for the right channel radio site, we ended up uh, increasing revenue by about, I think it was, you know, in, in the Right around 40%. It's a little rough, but right around there, more than a third, not quite 50%, a little shy of that. So so both were definitely uh, successful redesigns and relaunches, but uh, it's a very different approach than, than what you're probably what you're probably used to or what probably is a best practices approach. Yeah, um, it's, it's quite common. Michael, when we had on, uh, I believe for our first episode, he hates the word best practices as well because he does not believe in best practices. Everything, you know, to him, everything has to be tested and I totally agree because like there are no best practices. There are only frameworks and guidelines because you never know what's going to happen when you change the site. I mean, your approach is great. Finding out, like I said, the only strategy that one of the only strategies that really works is to find out more about the customer and serve their needs better. And that's what exactly what you did. So I'm not surprised that you got the conversion rate and the revenue increase that you mentioned. Uh, Francis, you're going to have me changing my entire vernacular here. No more, no more best practices, no more uh, USP. I'll have to be careful. <laughs> no, it's a, bit, it's a bit ranty, but one best practice is like the, the age-old best practice. You have your call to action above the fold. It's been drilled into the guru language and the internet marketing language for so long. So this is best practices, the best practice of having a call to action above the fold. And as a lot of tests have shown that this is rubbish. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of those too. And it's, it is kind of one of those, those myths that you hear all the time, but it's uh, not necessarily backed up by data. It might be better above the fold, but it really depends on the context. You basically want to put the call to action or your, anything in your marketing copy at the right point in time, at the right part of the customer's thought sequence rather than above the fold because they might need more information before they decide on taking this action. And if you have not given that information, they're just simply not going to click the button or to move to the next stage of the conversion funnel. So that's why I say it's rubbish. I mean, it, if your product is really simple, 
why not put it above the fold? You know, if free product that doesn't need much decision making, go ahead and do that. But if it's like a more complex product, you might want to explain a bit more before asking them to take action. Yeah, I know that makes sense. The more expensive the product, the more more information and explaining you're going to need to do. Absolutely. So yeah, about scientific approach that I mentioned, I think we, we discussed a bit about this offline. Uh, the problem with doing a, what you call a change like what you did would be a before and after test. So there's the before version and there's the after version. And we have a conversion rate increase. So from this data, we assume that the conversion rate has improved. For your sites, it's, it's pretty unique because you're not in a very, in a market where there's a lot of news, I would expect, or things change very often. But for especially a lot of consumer products, for example, uh, jewelry or supplements or something like that, where there's some news or seasonal changes that might affect the test. So for example, this month in July, we have a conversion rate of 3%. Next month, I do a redesign and it's 6%. So we have double our conversions and we say that, oh, our, our new design is better. That's why we have higher conversions. But it could be some, for example, let's say you are selling health supplements or some health juice or something like that. And there's a Dr. Oz goes on TV and says that your, your juice, uh, and he calls it out by brand, is the best ever. And your conversion rate increases because now you have all this targeted traffic coming to your site. It could not. It could be not due to your new website design. So that's that's what we call like a validity threat due to the history effect because some external factors affected your test. So when we do a split test, we cannot eliminate all of these threats, but uh, we can try to reduce that. So in a, on a very simple level, it could be more people buy on Mondays or weekends or weekdays or something like that. And we can try to reduce that kind of effect by using a, a 50-50 split test. Yeah, no, I hear you. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it is one of the downsides of, of doing, doing a massive change overall like that, because when you do a big collective change all at once, you know, yeah, exactly. Like you, you said, you know, the end result is better than the beginning, but you're not sure what components led to that. Was was one change responsible for the majority of it? Was, you know, was it was it everything in, in, in concert that helped? It's it's hard to say. To push back just a little bit, you, you can't necessarily, and I agree with you, Francis, if there's a, you know, if you have some big external event, there's all sorts, there's a lot of volatility or, or variation maybe when you're not split testing, you can't control for but you can mitigate a little bit of that. For example, like when we did the trollingmotors.net relaunch, uh, Trolling Motors is a very seasonal market. The fishing market really kicks off in early spring, goes through the summer, tails off in the fall, and is completely dead in the wintertime. And we did, I think we relaunched our site in January. And when you look from January to February, there's a, there's a significant increase in the conversion rate and the traffic for our site. And so when we were increasing... When we were looking at the increase in conversion, we looked at year over year, kind of the traffic levels. So we looked at a year ago versus a year today. And so when we when we saw that, okay, we had the old site in January, we have the new site in February, there's an increase of 50%. Well, we also looked at, okay, well, last year, how much did sales increase from January to February to help account for that seasonality? And then we took that out. And so if sales increased with the same site last year, with a static site from January to February, if they increased 100%, uh, and we, we saw an increase of you know 150% with the new design, well, you've got to bake out, you know, you know, you know remove that 100% increase that is just totally seasonal, and then you're left with a 50% increase. So it's not perfect, and, and you're right. It's you know, A-B split testing is definitely the way to go. But if you if you think through think through it, I think you can mitigate a lot of those, or at least some of those those variations. 
Okay, so uh, yeah, this before and after test, what you did to try to mitigate the seasonal changes is, is a great idea. It's the right approach, actually. Um, although I run a CRO agency and our bread and butter is split testing, for some clients, we do actually do before and after tests simply because they don't have enough traffic. But a lot of people, when they do these tests, they, they are not as careful as what you did, uh, as careful as you and what you did where, you know, let's, let's try to consider whether there are seasonal factors that affect the test. So it's definitely possible. And if there's no other choice, just do the before and after test. But uh, just be aware that there's, there are these factors that might affect the test. So, wow, you've seen... You seem to have considered a lot of things before you did the redesign. So this is like awesome. Yeah, it's and it's not perfect, but it helps. And I think it really depends because there's there's pros and cons to both, right? It, I think if you've got, I think if you're at a point where there's a lot of changes that you want to make to a website and you really, maybe like for for us, it was, I think the the total redesign was perfect for, for what we were doing because our old website was built when we knew very little about the market. And so we had a lot of new information we wanted to incorporate and it would have been just a tremendous amount of work to try to A-B split test all the different changes, 50, 100 different changes, and then try to incorporate just the ones that, that were successful. And so I think if you have an, a lot of changes to make, the before and after can work well. And then once you get to a point where where I, th- I feel like we are with with our stores, where you feel like you, you've got a better uh, idea of how you can add value to the customers. You, you've really kind of tackled some of that. Uh, I'm going to use another buzzword here. For instance, low hanging fruit. You know, stuff that obvious things that you you know you should change. Then once you get to that point, then I think the A/B split testing is is perfect because then you can really start targeting your high. Uh, your high leverage points in your business, your homepage, your checkout funnel, uh, things like that, and start tweaking those uh, in a very controlled environment to to uh, to really maximize your conversion there. So yeah, it's funny you should say this whole incremental changes. I don't really do incremental changes for the first test. A lot of testers would disagree, but for the first test for most e-commerce site clients, I don't just test one headline or one button. I test sweeping changes across the whole site because usually when they come to me, the site is really, really bad. And there's simply no point in testing like oh, this headline or this button color when the whole site is broken. They have no value proposition. They might, or they might have one and they've not expressed it. Uh, the checkout is broken because it's so hard to use, that kind of thing. So we usually test like a lot of changes at one time and we t- basically do a radical redesign, but on the whole site. Using we use Optimizely, so it's possible but more challenging to do split testing on the entire site. So when you do that, Francis, will you be doing multivariate where you've got ten or 12, 12 tests going at once, and it's you know Optimizely will be able to consider the combinations of all of those? No, I don't do multivariate testing. At least not for the first test. Maybe a bit later on when we we are very specific about what we want to test. When I say specific, I'm saying about like one element combined with maybe one call to action. But generally, generally speaking, I don't, I'm not a fan of multivariate testing. It's, it's more of like, it carries with it more like, I don't know what I really want. So let's just let the system tell me. And that's not a very good approach to go. It also needs much more traffic to do a multivariate test. So what I do is actually an A-B test, but on the entire site. So version A site and version B site. And that's what I do. So it's many, many changes at one time. 
The downside of this approach is that you don't get as much learning. I think you touched on that late, uh, a bit earlier. Like if you do a lot of the changes at once, you don't know how much each individual element contributed to the final version and do the improve or decrease conversions. So that's the downside. Uh, but we're quite careful. We have this approach that has worked a couple of times. Like we're quite careful to, let's say we, we test a value proposition and we only try to test like one one core value proposition. And at the same time, we try to fix the friction and anxiety elements. So that's the general approach. So it's a, it's a radical re redesign of the entire test, but we split test it. And again, you don't get much learning out of this. But at the end of the day, we're trying to make more money here. So, you know, if I test just one element, yeah, I might get a conversion rate increase or decrease and we try to get a learning from there. But I don't recommend it for the first test. I would, well, that's not exactly right. Depends on context as well, but I usually don't do that for the first test because the test, the site is so bad at uh, to start with in the first place. So why just test one element? Why not fix what needs to be fixed first based on research, based on usability testing, based on analytics? And then later on, we try to get a bit more learning to try to even get that conversion rate much higher. It's not an approach that everyone recommends. So, well, in summary, it'll be more like First test, let's try to get the conversion rate up and try to get a bit of learning out of that. And later on, we can try to get a bit less incremental increase or decrease in conversion rates, but try to get much more learning out of that by tweaking less elements. Yeah, so it's a kind of a unique approach, but I find that the balance is good for the clients because they get to enjoy the benefits of the conversion rate changes immediately. Could you tell us how the challenges you've encountered when trying to convert e-commerce traffic into sales? I think the biggest challenge for us, and we've kind of talked uh, or touched on this a bit, is is really just knowing your customers well and identifying the specific problems that they have and how they're using your end products, uh, the products you're selling. When we got into both of both of our our stores, our businesses, we were kind of starting from scratch, and we we thought we knew what 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 our, who our target customers were going to be. We thought we knew exactly how they would use our products, and we thought we knew what their problems, you know, what the problems they would encounter would be. And we were almost always wrong. <laughs> we almost always got it wrong. So I think really understanding uh, who your customers are, the problems they're running into, and, and, um, and how to address those is most important. And if you're, if you're in the market and you're an end consumer and you're part of that target market, that's a huge advantage because you already, you already know that or at least have a great leg up on what those issues are. If you're not, if you're coming into a market you're not part of, that information gathering and, and that uh, market research and just getting to know your customers and your products takes a while. So that's been one big challenge for us. Another one has been using phones effectively. One thing we found with our tech Testing is is we found that just having an 800 number on a website increases sales by 15%. And that, that even excludes the number of people who call by a phone. So just having a, a toll-free number on your website will increase the number of people who order online by 10 to 15%. And so having a phone number is really powerful. It can, it can build a lot of trust. But at the same time, offering live phone support is really expensive. Uh, from a from a personnel standpoint and a customer customer support standpoint, and so we've taken different approaches for that in our business on on the CB side, where the order average order sizes are a little bit smaller. We've opted to not necessarily offer full on phone support, but instead really kind of redirect some of those resources to offering fantastic customer service for the people who do order online. So you know we we do have uh, fairly good email support, really good email support, but then also we we try to really take care of customers in kind of unusual ways. So if you know a customer has something that, that breaks or arrives defective, a lot of times we'll just send them a brand new product without having them ship the old one back. 
back. But then for our trolling motor business, we've actually found that we really do need to have the phones there for that for that business to work well. The trolling motors a lot of times are more expensive, they're higher priced items, and people a customer really needs to talk with with somebody before you know, making a a thousand or $1,500 buying decision for for a complex product. And so uh, we found phones are essential there. uh, And we're able to actually be able to provide a good level of quality phone service uh, because the the per uh, order profit's a little bit higher on the trolling motor side than it would be on the CB side. And so that's been an issue. And uh, and mobile as well, or or not mobile, excuse me, but, uh, but really just trying to to think through the scope and how much stuff, you know, how many different things you, you have to, to test and work on with conversion. Because when you're a small store like we are, you know, we've got a, a team of just a couple of us uh, wearing a lot of different hats, doing the marketing, the SEO, the customer service. Uh, it's it's hard to get to everything. And so uh, really trying to prioritize what on the conversion uh you know, task list is most important and trying to get to everything has also been a challenge. So those are the kind of the two or three of the biggest things, uh, biggest challenges we've encountered. I think it's awesome that you said that we were wrong basically about some assumptions we made about the customer. Very often when we do tests, we have all this best practices. But um, I've had tests gone so-called wrong. So the, the test actually decreased conversions and it's important at least when I deal with clients and my agency deals with clients, it's important to tell them that, you know what, this test might not go so well, but we have designed it in such a way that even if it doesn't go so well, we can get some uh, learning from this. So the only bad test is a test where we learn nothing. So, But it's very important to say I, I'm training up some analysts as well to try to expand the consultancy. I always tell them like, you know, step number one, you have to learn to say we were wrong. Oh, we were, we were dead wrong. Both times, <laughs> you know, I think I think the chances of being right when you come into a new market are minimal. You know, I think most of the time you're going to have a lot of misconceptions that are going to take a while to figure out. Oh, our track record is pretty good, but sometimes tests don't go as we expect them, and that's part of the testing. That's why we test. If we knew the result beforehand, we wouldn't need to test. So, just quickly on the phone number, it's interesting you mentioned about that. Um, I think most case studies would say that just having the existence of a phone number on the site does increase conversions, but uh, it depends on the context as well. It's interesting you mentioned that for your trolling motors uh, site, where's your phone number? It's actually it's actually not on it's not on the main main page. We uh, if you click on the contact us page. Uh, and you say you want to order something or you have questions, you can see it there. And that actually, you know, that may be a uh, an oversight on our redesign. We need to test. <laughs> so I would, I would actually test it on the top right hand corner. That's where the phone number always is. That's that's good advice. We'll uh, we'll do that. So people expect it to be in the top right corner. But uh, once you put it in a more prominent position, you're gonna get more calls. So I would recommend testing it in combination with specialized call logging service like Log My Calls. So usually you cannot track offline events into your analytics, but with a with a platform like Lock My Calls, you can you can do something like that. One of the one of the reasons why it's not right on the homepage is there's a number of reasons people will call us that aren't sales related. A lot of people mistake us for the manufacturer and and want to you know they have a warranty claim. A lot of people are looking for trolling motor parts, which we don't sell, and so one of the reasons why we didn't 
put it front and center was because we were trying to filter out on the website, you know, non-qualified leads, non-qualified callers. And so if you click on the contact us page, uh, the two or three most common kind of non-qualified questions people had, we would answer those. And then if somebody did, you know, have a question about a product or, or an order or something, then it would go through to their, their phone number. So, but we should probably, you really are trying to, in that case, you're kind of offsetting, you know, the cost of servicing maybe non-qualified calls versus the reduction you would see in, in overall conversion. And we haven't, we haven't probably looked at that as closely as we should have. Yeah, it's worth all the test anyway. You never know. If there's one most important thing you want our listeners to remember and apply to get maximum results from conversion optimization on e-commerce sites, what would that be? I think the most important thing to, to take away from, from the conversion process is there may be a few exceptions, but in the most case, you don't want to optimize for revenue. You don't want to optimize for conversions. You you want to optimize for for profitability, and that's something that took me a while to realize. And I still don't do a you know as good of a job as I should on on this. I think the one big event that that made me realize that was with Right Channel Radios. We'd been running for a couple a couple years, and I had never tested, never really touched our pricing at all. Uh, and and with drop shipping, the margins are are fairly small uh, relative to you know average drop shipping margins are anywhere from ten to thirty percent on average. There you know there's some outliers, but that's kind of on average what you're going to see drop shipping margins at. And so increasing the price has a has a uh, an exponential effect on profitability. So because your margins are so small, uh, any increase in price, all of that goes to your bottom line. It can really have an impact on your, your profitability. And so I remember after a couple of years, I said, hey, I'll do a little testing. And I increased the price on, I think, our, our top 25 products by a very small margin. You know, It was like anywhere from 5 to 10 or maybe 15% on the high side. So not a large amount. And, and the results were just incredible. I think the overall profitability of the store went up by, by a third, like 35 to 40% overnight just instantly. And uh, I think that's the most important thing I would I would just, you know, leave with people is is it's easy to focus on revenue, it's easy to focus on conversion rates, uh and, and you know, I fall into that same trap like everyone else does, but at the end of the day, uh, you want to be conversioning, you want to be optimizing and maximizing your profitability. This is an interesting episode. Well, we just completed a, a test on pricing a couple about a month back and we did not test the increase in price. We tested the presentation of the price and we increased conversions uh, in terms of revenue 40% from the presentation. So another idea to test not only the, the change in pricing, but the presentation of the pricing. Wow. So, so when you say presentation, what do you mean by that? Do you mean by like incorporating free shipping in or not incorporating it in, things like that? Not really. Uh, the main change, is, this was a single product site with uh, three different pricing options in terms of like how many how many products can get. So uh, so basically different packages. So it's like a standard, think of it, of it like a SaaS app. You have uh, three different pricing options. And we basically just swap the order of the pricing as well as emphasize one of them, the middle option. And we tweaked a, a bit of the presentation of the value proposition, but the main change was basically the order of the pricing as well as the text on the call to action button. And that was 40%. I was totally shocked, actually. I'm going to publish the case study in a couple of weeks. So that should be interesting. Very cool. Is there a way, have you have you done that with, with physical products uh, where you can... Oh, oh, it is. I thought it was a SaaS app. This is a physical product. Uh, it is, yeah. Uh, but it's presented like a SaaS app. So it was actually a supplements product. So yeah, it's a physical product. But I guess it also works across all verticals. So uh, the concept is would be more like price anchoring. So if people see a more expensive price first and they see a cheaper price, they would think like, oh, that's so cheap. 
but if you show them the cheaper price first and you go to a more expensive price, they'll be like, oh, you know, I'm not so sure. Maybe I'll go for the cheap option. So it's, it's a psychological price anchoring effect. And so when you did that design, did you put the most expensive price first, kind of on the left-hand side? Yes. I see. Okay, got you. That makes sense. So that, that was, was really cool, for lack of a better word. I mean, like, you know, it's a huge increase just from a, one simple, uh, it's a several, several changes, but like one simple concept. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's crazy. That's that's why CRO is so cool. Is it's the you know the fastest way if you're going to try to increase your traffic forty percent. Oh man, it's a lot of work, but uh, uh, it's you get a lot of leverage with that. So okay, so uh, where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you? The best place to do it is is my blog, uh, and that's ecommercefuel.com. Uh, it's it's where I blog about running my businesses, uh, interview other folks, uh, and uh, and try to publish a lot of case studies, as many as I can, about, uh, about things I'm doing on my own sites. I understand you have a new podcast that's coming up. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's going to be launching here uh, at the end of July. I'm not quite sure when this, this episode will air, but I think July 30th is when it's slated to, to go live. And it's a podcast focused exclusively on e-commerce. I'll be talking a lot about what I'm doing with my own businesses, talking about other people's stores, our reader stores, and uh, how, you know, how things are going for them. And, and especially interviewing a lot of e-commerce professionals and entrepreneurs. So having some long form discussions about a lot of the things that, that store owners really wrestle with and struggle with and, uh, going to be a podcast dedicated to entrepreneurs and especially independent kind of store owners that are running e-commerce shops. Um, so how do we find this podcast? The best best way to get to it is going to be ecommercefuel.com forward slash podcast. Or of course, you can go to uh, iTunes and search for e-commerce fuel. The name of the podcast is just the e-commerce fuel podcast. And so those are the two best ways to to uh, to find out more about it. Great. I think this has been a great episode. So thanks for your time today. And we should do this again. I think this we, we raised some interesting points on this episode. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Hey everyone, if you like the Conversions Podcast, please do leave us a review and rating over at iTunes. I would really appreciate that. That would really help the podcast grow and to help us get more awesome guests to interview and provide more great conversion strategies to help you bring your website's performance to the next level. Thank you for listening to the Conversions Podcast. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. We love hearing from you. Connect with us at our website, conversionspodcast.com and let us know what you think. 